Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, in our journey through the book of Ephesians, as we have uh, been in this series called Keep Walking, Walking in Christ, and every week we have kept walking through uh, the uh, book that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Today we will complete our journey. We will finish walking through the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to be in verses 10 through 24 uh, together this morning in Ephesians. There was a book written over 2,500 years ago by a Chinese military strategist named Sun Tzu. The title of the book is The Art of War. Today, the Department of the United States Army lists this book as one that should be kept in every military unit's library. It is listed on the Marine Corps' professional reading program and is recommended reading for all United States military intelligence personnel. It is used by NFL coaches to gain insights in preparing for games. It is used by CEOs to gain insight for leading Fortune 500 companies. It is the go-to book for military commanders and strategists all around the world from almost every major country on the globe. It is still considered today the greatest book ever written on the art of fighting and winning a war. And you may say, that's interesting information, but completely of no value to me. But here's the thing, the theme of the book, how to fight and win a war, is actually relevant to all of us. Because whether we realize it or not, we are at war. When I say all of us, I mean every single person on the face of our planet wakes up every morning to a real raging war. It's an invisible war. It's an unseen war that has visible consequences that we can see every day. It is the war between light and darkness, between good and evil, between heaven and hell, between God and Satan, between the church and the world. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard? Why it seems like every day is a struggle? Why there's so much pain, so much suffering, so much agony in the world? Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to maintain a good marriage or why it's so hard to raise children? Why it's so impossible to please your boss or maybe to get your act together financially? Have you ever wondered why somebody is always fighting against someone else or nations are raging against other nations? If there isn't an alcohol problem, it's a drug problem. If there isn't a drug problem, it's a pornography problem. If there's not a pornography problem, then it's a road rage problem. Why? Because we are all in a war that we face every day. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Paul believed in an unseen spiritual realm. And for what it's worth, Jesus believed in that realm as well. In fact, Jesus spent a large portion of his ministry in direct conflict with the demonic and this summarized his entire ministry by proclaiming liberty to captives that were held captive to these demonic forces. Captives, of course, imply that there's someone or something that is actually holding you captive. Now, we use that language a lot, but sometimes, practically speaking, we don't actually believe that that is a reality. So, Paul picks up right where Jesus leaves off. Throughout the book of Ephesians, he is referring to the believer's life as a struggle, a fight, a warfare against evil forces. And he's going to end the book of Ephesians with a list of weapons that we actually need in order to engage the enemy in this warfare. C.S. Lewis put it this way, when it comes to demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. They either take them altogether too seriously or they do not take them seriously at all. Maybe you've known some Christians who fall into that first category. They attribute every single thing that might be even considered an inconvenient circumstance to Satan. A dead car battery, a traffic jam, a, the price increase at Bojangles right next door. I can't believe they've raised biscuit prices to $1.40. Now I can't afford to tithe anymore. This is spiritual warfare. And, and that's probably obviously taking that a little bit too far. Maybe everything isn't spiritual warfare. But then others commit an equally dangerous error. And that is, I believe, what Paul is addressing here today. They ignore demonic forces, evil forces, spiritual warfare all together. And here, Paul turns his attention to them. As he closes his letter to the Ephesians, here are some things that he reminds us of. If we really are in a spiritual war, like Jesus talks about, like Paul talks about, then number one, show up to the war. You can't continue to pretend like it's not existing. You can't continue to be AWOL. You can't continue to just close your eyes and hope it goes away. That's not how this works. In verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Too many people don't believe or have never considered that there is a war even taking place, so they're not prepared for the battle that we face every day. I mean, can't you look around you and see the evidence of demonic forces everywhere? Look back and see in your own life how certain temptations were just too perfectly timed and specifically tailored for you in order for it to just simply be coincidental. How the wrong person was put in your life at just the right time. How the right questions were planted in your head as seeds to throw you off track from what you were supposed to be doing. The suspicion that came into your heart at just the right time to make you doubt. The perfect storm that seemed to happen in your marriage or other relationships or in a small group Bible study at church or even in church in general that would drive a wedge between you and that person that you're supposed to be loving and supposed to be in a good relationship with. Every once in a while, you encounter something where something inside of you says, that's evil. Acts of terrorism, 
mothers killing their children. You watch a special on the Holocaust and you see how embarrassed Germany is and, and how they say, how could we ever have let something like this happen? Well, it's because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and spiritual evil in high places that are not noticed to our natural eye. But here's the thing. If the enemy is real, then you must stand against the enemy. In verse 10 and 11, it reminds us of that very fact. Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand up to the enemy. Now, here's the reality that we need to be facing. There are things we cannot see, but that does not mean they do not exist. Just because you can't see Satan or his demons doesn't mean that he's not there. In 1864, a physician named Ignaz Semmelweis stumbled onto a theory that we now call germ theory. In those days, everyone thought diseases would spontaneously generate in the body because there was something wrong with the body, like maybe it had too much blood, or maybe it got too hot, or something like that. And so doctors didn't even consider the fact that they themselves might be carrying germs and passing them from body to body. They, without even washing their hands, they would move from one person to another in their treatment. And, and there was also this thought in the day that gentlemen don't actually need to wash their hands because they're clean. They couldn't see the dirt. They couldn't see what we now call germs, and so they must not be present. So a doctor would actually go, work, go from working on a corpse, on a dead body, to delivering a baby. And of course, that's one of the reasons why the mortality rate for labor and delivery, not just for the baby, but also for the mothers, was so extraordinarily high. Well, Semmelweis began to suspect that there was the possibility that the doctors were actually carrying disease and passing it from person to person in small particles that were invisible to the human eye. He didn't know what to call them, so he called them microbes. It just literally meant pieces of flesh, small pieces of flesh. And, and it seems so obvious to us now. But nobody in those days thought that way. They didn't have microscopes. They couldn't see these microscopic germs on people's hands. He tested his theory by having the interns at the hospital wash their hands with water and a little chlorine before delivering babies. And here's what they found. The mortality rate drastically went down. Well, even when he gave this just insurmountable evidence to the doctors, they wouldn't accept the theory because the idea that all of this destruction and this death was caused by something that was on them just seemed too unbelievable. We can't see it, so it can't be true. At a famous conference uh, in those days, he pleaded with these doctors, gentlemen, for God's sake, please just wash your hands. But nobody listened. For two decades, nobody listened. Until finally Louis Pasteur came up with the evidence that proved that that germ theory was actually a reality. Even his own wife didn't believe him. And he died in an asylum about two decades after 
making this discovery. You know, many Christians are equally naive when it comes to what's happening in our own lives. We disbelieve things that we cannot see. And so we discredit the idea that there's something bigger and more powerful and more evil going on than we actually recognize. But our enemy is real. And we must stand against him. But if we're going to stand against our enemy, you must understand the enemy. Part of what the art of war taught us was that you have to understand, get into the mind of your enemy. Well, God tells us about our enemy. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our adversary, the devil. Scripture talks about him quite a bit in different places. And by the way, Satan could not care less whether or not you believe in him. He is not interested in recognition. He is after your destruction. So if you discrediting or not believing in him, that actually helps his cause. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls him an angel of light. That doesn't sound very bad, does it? But it means he'll transform himself into whatever is best suited to deceive you. Most of the time, we will even mistake him for something good. Ah, oh, this can't be bad. It feels too good. This can't be bad. It looks too good. This can't be bad. Look at all that it provides for me. It makes sense that in the modern Western world, his best deceptions would not come from making someone's eyes roll back in their heads or foam at the mouth or levitate six feet off the ground or anything else like on the horror movies that we've seen, but from working invisibly, stealthily, behind the scenes, not even as though it is something evil. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It doesn't sound like he's your friend. It shows me two things. First of all, Satan is like a hunter. A hunt, and hunters don't care if you see them. Matter of fact, they'd rather you not see them. They can sneak up on their prey a lot more easily if that person or that animal don't know that they're coming. Second, he is seeking our destruction. The hunter is not hunting so that he can be our friend. We need to be ready for battle. It's because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and spiritual evil in high places. God tells us this information for two reasons that we see here in Ephesians chapter 6. First, so that we will recognize there actually is a great spiritual war waging in our world right now. And, and we need to show up for battle. It's not going away. And we are to be ambassadors and messengers and children of our Father who seek to honor Him in the way that we fight this battle. But the other reason He tells us to drive us is to greater dependency on Him. If this were merely a battle against other humans or even with my own struggles, then that would be one thing. But against cosmic powers? Against an enemy with supernatural power? It requires us to prepare ourselves for battle. And so, the second thing, don't just show up for war but suit up for the war verse 13 says therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm 
the first thing he tells us here to put on is the belt of truth. Now there's six items, seven technically, but six items of armor that we are to take on, to put on. We're going to walk through them quickly, just kind of identify what he means by them here. But putting on the belt of truth really begins there in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Your belt goes around your waist, around your core. And the reality of the Roman soldier belt, which was the analogy that he's using here, is that the belt holds all of the rest of the weapons and the armor in place. It is our core. It is very vast. Listen, if you don't have your belt on, your pants fall down. Your armor falls off. Your weapons fall to the ground. You cannot be prepared without the belt of truth. So what does Paul mean here by the belt of truth? Two things. And we always typically think about the truth as a what. But in Scripture, we are reminded that the truth is first a who. He's saying, fasten up your belts, Jesus, and make your identity as Christ, in Christ as the center of your life. Remember John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is our relationship with Christ through the Word of God that allows us to even be able to fasten on the rest of the armor. The Gospel reminds us that there's nothing you could do to make God love you more and nothing that you have done that would make Him love you less. Are you still basing your identity on your own performance or on other people's expectation or perspective of you? Or is your identity in Christ? That's the reality that you need to be facing. Do you still care more about what somebody else thinks about you than Jesus? <clears throat> if so, then that is a place that Satan can and will attack in your life. That's how Satan attacked Jesus at his temptation. If you are the Son of God, well, what was he questioning there? He was questioning his identity. And if you don't know and you have not based your entire life on your identity in Christ, then Satan will attack it. He will get you to question it. If you really were a Christian, you wouldn't struggle with things like this. If you really were a son or daughter of God, your life wouldn't be so hard. If God really did exist, then things would be different in your life. Isn't that how he attacked Jesus when he tempted him? That's how he will attack us too. Your identity in Christ provides you with the truth of the gospel to be prepared for the battle. But the second thing the belt of truth implies is that you have grounded your perspective on the things in which he says, things like sexuality, marriage, the purpose of life, generosity, all the things that God tells us in Scripture. Our perspective on those things comes from God's Word. How do you determine what's true and right in your life? For some people, they rely upon their own internal compass. Well, it feels right, so I'll do it. For others, they follow the whims of popular opinion. Whatever their friends or professors or their favorite actor or professional athlete thinks, whatever Hollywood tells them, then that's what's right or wrong for their life. But the only way to escape the deception of the enemy is to let the Word of God shape your way of thinking. Wherever you're not covered by the truth of Scripture, you are exposed to an attack of the enemy. His goal is to get you to do one of two things with God's Word. To doubt it, or to neglect it. Now, here's the thing. Most of the time in church, our problem is not that we doubt the Word of God. Now, some places, yes. But for the most part, in church, we're not doubting the Word of God. But we do struggle with neglecting it. Bart Ehrman is a professor of New Testament 
at the University of North Carolina. Interesting that he's a professor of New Testament at a secular university. He is a skeptic. He actually claims to be, uh, proudly proclaims to be, a happy agnostic. But he is credited, and he is proud of this, by the way, with leading thousands of college freshmen away from Christian faith. He always starts his class by holding up the Bible and asking, how many of you believe this book is true? He said, generally speaking, about two-thirds of the class will raise their hands. How many of you actually have taken the time then, if that's true, to read the entirety of this book from cover to cover? And he said, usually all of the hands go down except for about two or three. And then he says, wait a minute. You're telling me that you believe that an almighty God has given you a book and you've not even taken the time to read it? He's trying to show them, and he teaches the class from this perspective, that they don't really believe that it's the Word of God after all. Because ultimately, he spends his time in class showing them and teaching their heads to believe what their hearts have already put into practice, that this must not be that important because I've not spent any time reading it. Now, I certainly disagree with Ehrman on just about everything he teaches. But in this particular instance, let's be honest. I think he's probably right. If you believe God's Word is true, the proof of you believing that is actually in whether or not you read it and apply it to your life. This is a battle. And you better put on your belt of truth or you won't have any weapons or any armor at all to defend yourself as you make your way through this battle. Second, put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate covers all of your vital organs. It covers the areas that you would be vulnerable to attack that might actually be mortal wounds. You get your arm cut, you get your leg cut, but you want to cover your vital organs. Again, Paul says here, being covered with righteousness first means embracing your identity in Christ. Satan's going to use whatever part of you that's not surrendered to God and conformed to his truth as his focal point of attack. If you don't cover your vital organs with the righteousness of Christ, and isn't this what the gospel teaches us? That, that Christ takes our sin and our shortcomings and He gives us His righteousness and His righteousness covers us. Therefore, we stand before God justified. But when we don't cover ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness, then ultimately we are vulnerable to an attack. When we begin to live unrighteously, not in obedience to the commands of God. Maybe it's a bad habit that you have that you know sinful, but you just don't take seriously enough to try to depend upon God to break that bad habit or a temptation you just can't say no to. Maybe it's someone you won't forgive or a bad relationship that you just won't let go. Maybe it's an area of your life that's just not under God's control. God, I want you to be Lord of my life except in this particular area. Maybe it's the person you're dating. Maybe it's not even the person you're dating. Maybe it's the way in which you date them. And they've taken precedence over God's uh, position and priority in your life. Maybe it's how you spend your money. Whatever part of your life is not brought into obedience to God's Word will be a focal point for Satan to attack in your life, and he's going to keep hitting you where you are vulnerable. What do you think that's going to be for you? might not be the same as the person sitting next to you, but every one of us have weak spots. Let me ask it this way. If you knew a year from now that Satan was going to bring you down, 
right now in your mind, what do you think the area would be that he would use? You need to cover that with the righteousness of Christ. Okay, third, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, of peace. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We've often heard many times people talk about the armor of God, and they generally talk about how there's only one offensive uh, weapon. And we'll get to that weapon in just a minute, but I don't think that's true. Actually, our feet are offensive weapons because they carry you into battle. Paul says we overcome Satan by going on the offense with the gospel. This overcomes Satan's work in our life and in the lives of other people. First of all, sharing the gospel with people is how we overcome Satan's work in others. I mean, clearly, many times the attacks that we face come from other people attacking us. But we need to learn how to respond to those attacks with the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a wonderful opportunity over the course of the next several weeks to share the gospel in one way by inviting people to come to our Christmas event that's coming up on December the 19th. But you sharing the gospel ought to be more than just inviting people to church. I want you to be able to share the gospel because sometimes you're not going to be able to get them to come to church, but you'll have them captive in your conversation sometimes. So as a church, we want to help you to grow and to equip you in this particular area. That's why Jeff Roundtree is continuing to lead our evangelism training class. He's going to start up a whole new session of training and evangelism on January the 5th. If you don't know how to or you're not comfortable with or you're not real sure what to say when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, sign up for that class. That's why we offer it. You'll learn some helpful tools but it'll also prepare you to utilize the shoes of the gospel of peace as weapons against the evil one. God's made it so that we are only healthy when we are fighting against the powers and principalities of this world. This is how we take the fight to Satan. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth, put on the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is really a way of summarizing all of the other pieces. Satan's main weapons are the lies that he throws into your hearts and into your minds. You're not supposed to try to out-reason Satan. That won't work. Cosmic powers? Sounds a little bigger than us. You're supposed to hide from those fiery darts behind your shield of faith which means coming against them in your mind with what God has told you is true in his word, in his gospel. So Satan hurls those fiery darts at you. You're no good. You're nothing. You're pathetic. After what you did, do you think God still loves you? You can never make a difference. He'll never use you. Your marriage will always be bad. You'll never be a good parent. You will always be sick. You will never get out of debt. But then you put up your shield of faith in what you have learned from the Word of God and what you are believing in God and His promises. And that shield goes up and you say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Joshua says, I am blessed coming in and blessed going out. Greater is He that's in me than he that is in the world. God has plans to prosper me, not to harm me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God is working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He will never leave me and never forsake me. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know He's watching me. My kids have a 
a saying, a favorite saying that they use around the house all the time, sometimes appropriately, sometimes not appropriately, but it's something that is on their lips a lot, and it is this, not today, Satan. As Satan hurls his fiery darts at us, we have the ability by the power of God's Word and the faith that we have in Him to say, not today, Satan. One of the songs that they used to listen to from Veggie Tales was a song that said, God is bigger than the boogeyman. Well, that's true. We do believe he's bigger than the boogeyman since the boogeyman doesn't exist. But he is also greater than Satan, and Satan does exist. But Satan is no match for our God, and the promises of God are bigger than him. We have faith, and we must stand firm upon it and put up that shield. Fifth, put on the helmet of salvation. Uh, This is repeating, again, some of the things he's already said specifically. Your head is where you think. Paul is telling us to let the truth about our salvation and God's grace in our lives, permeate our minds. Do not let the fiery darts of Satan get into your mind and make you doubt God. He is true, and He loves you beyond measure. Every morning, there are a couple of things we ought to tell ourselves from the truth of the gospel. We talked about it earlier in the service today, but you need to think about it every day. Because I'm in Christ, there is nothing I could do that would make you love me anymore. And there's nothing that I have done that would make you love me any less. It is a gift of Christ. We also ought to be reminded that the Lord Jesus, you are all I need for everlasting joy. Your love for me is total and it is enough. I don't need recognition from the world. I don't need for the world to love me. I simply need for you to love me. Jerry Bridges, the author of the book Discipline of Grace, in that book says something that has always stuck with me. As a believer, as a child of God, we should preach the gospel to ourselves daily. That's what putting on the helmet of salvation looks like. Every day, remind yourself of what you have in the gospel, and Satan cannot touch it. Reminding ourselves daily that we didn't save ourselves and we can't keep ourselves saved. Our identity is in Christ, and we are secure in Him. So guess what? Not today, Satan. I belong to Christ. And sixth, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now Paul transitions to exclusively offensive weapons. We've already talked about our shoes. That is certainly an offensive weapon. But here we have our sword, which is, he tells us, the Word of God. We don't have to try to figure out what that means. Your ability to overcome Satan is directly proportionate to your knowledge of the Word of God. That's scary based on some of the things we said earlier. But that means we need to learn it. We need to read it, we need to memorize it, we need to meditate on it, we need to sing it, we need to live it. In order to be a good disciple maker, you've got to first be a good disciple, which means knowing the Word better than you know anything else. If you're going to put your time into studying something, put it into studying something that gives you life. This is actually the end of the discussion of the armor of God here in this passage of Scripture, but there's one other offensive weapon that is vital in the battle against the powers of darkness, and this is a weapon that requires you to speak up in the war. 18, verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here's what he tells us to do. Here's one tool that you have in the war against Satan and the powers of darkness that is something that he cannot combat. 
you have access to the Father. So here's what you ought to do. Call out to your Father. You ever seen war movies where there were people that were isolated, surrounded by the enemy? They desperately needed a way to contact their allies, to contact their commander, to contact those who might have the ability to come in and save them. Hey, guess what? Never once in this spiritual war are you ever left at a place to where you do not have open communication with the commander of the heavenly armies, with the creator of the universe, with the one who is greater than any foe you will ever face? Many times people don't include this in the list of weapons, but it is our main weapon. When you can call in reinforcements, and the reinforcements are always stronger than any enemy you'll ever face, you don't have a better weapon. Notice that prayer is not something we do only in preparation for battle. But it's what you do when you're dressed for battle. Put on the army of God, and then to, what does it say? Run, fight Satan? No, put on the army of God, or the armor of God, and then call out to God. Many times we treat prayer like it's preparation for ministry. According to Paul, prayer is the ministry. Prayer is where we put into practice what we believe about the gospel. we got all this armor on. Now here's what we're going to do with it. We're going to turn everything over to God. Prayer is not the only thing we do. But prayer is the first thing we do. It is also the most effective thing that we will do. We call out to our Father. And actually, he even tells us here, call out for your family. Don't just pray for yourself. Pray for all the saints. He says there in verse 18, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for others as well. We need to pray for one another. If this spiritual war is real for us, then it's real for our brothers and sisters in Christ too. It's real for the person sitting next to you. It's, it's real for the person in a different service. It's real for the person who couldn't make it today. It's real for the person who didn't want to make it today. And the best thing you can do for every one of them is call out to your Father on their behalf. But it also means you need to pray for your church leaders as well. I'll be more specific. It means you need to pray for me. Verse 19, Paul said, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Look, you don't need me up here every week giving you my words. You need the Spirit's words. My words might educate you, but His can liberate you. My words might fill your mind, but His can save your soul. You need God's word. You don't need my words to help you through your day. And that's only going to come as you pray for me and your other leaders to be under the influence and wisdom and direction of the Holy Spirit as we try to lead in a way that brings honor to Him and is a benefit to you and helps us to reach the lost with the gospel. I need you to pray for me. So here's the deal. Paul's last words are to tell us, yes, life is war. But we can and should be confident that we have a God who is willing to fight that battle for us. Ultimately, all these pieces of armor are simply learning to apply the gospel to our life. They're not new spiritual strategies that we need to learn, but they are learning to cover our life in God's strength that has always been present. 
The way to fight Satan is not to focus on Satan. Too many people do that. They want to know everything they can about Satan and find out who he is and where he is and what he's doing and all those types of things. And while that may be fascinating, that's not how we fight him. We fight him by covering our life with the gospel. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells a parable about a man who had an evil spirit living in in his house. And that's an analogy for actually living within him. But he manages to drive out that spirit and to clean his house. In our current context, you might think about somebody who's struggling with an addiction. Maybe an addiction to drugs. And they manage to get their life right and they get a job and they have a family. But during the time when they are cleaning up their life, the demon that they have cleaned out of their house, now he's in his house straightening things up that the demon messed up, the demon has gone out and finds seven demons to come back with him. This is all Jesus' analogy. And they actually move into the man's house, and the last state of the man is worse than the first state of the man. But then Jesus says, when you drive a strong man out of a house, when you drive a demon out of a house, you need someone stronger than him to keep that man out. In other words, when you kick somebody out of your house, they can just come back, especially if they bring more, stronger people with them. But in Jesus' analogy, here's what he's telling us as we face this spiritual warfare. As we face the demons and the difficulties and the evil, the powers of darkness, these cosmic powers, when we find little victories, we don't need to be proud of ourselves. We need to be more dependent upon God. See, too many times in our life, we are most vulnerable when we think we are strong. It is when we realize that we are weak, when we depend upon His strength, that His strength shows up perfect and completely and totally overwhelms the enemy. That strong man is Jesus. You can't defeat Satan by keeping him out of your house at your own strength. You need to fill your house with a stronger man. You need to cover your life with the armor pieces of the gospel. The way to resist Satan is not to engage Satan. It is to get filled with the presence of Jesus, who is greater than any foe that might come your way. Charles Spurgeon said, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. How do you get the devil out of your home? How do you get the devil out of your head? How do you get the devil out of your church? Preach Christ. Trust Christ. Dwell on Christ. As a Christian, we don't have to fight for victory over Satan. That victory has already been won. We are fighting from victory that Jesus has already won for us and given to us as a gift. We already win. Stop trying to win. You're already victorious. So bask in the victory of Jesus and let him fight the battle. Notice the last verse of the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. God's love is incorruptible. Only His love is everlasting, immutable, all-powerful, unchangeable. Only His love can fight the corruptible, the fallen, the ever-changing world. The gospel Paul has proclaimed in Ephesians is, you got a problem, and that problem is sin. It shows up in all of our horizontal relationships. But the main problem we have is between our 
vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. And only Christ has the answer. And you've been saved by grace, and you can only live by grace. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. When you were guilty, He forgave you. When you were dead, He raised you. In Christ, He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which means and includes victory over all of Satan's forces. So here's what we need to do. Lean into His power. Because His strength is perfect. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank You for the privilege of learning from Your Word that You've given us all that we need in the Gospel to put on the full armor to face the battle which lies ahead. God, we thank you that you are greater than our adversary. We thank you that you've already told us how this story ends. Help us to live from a place of victory and help those who don't know to cry out to you today to follow Christ and to be set free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.